0: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this programme, we are exploring the life and music of Francis Poulenc in the company of writer and musicologist Roger Nichols. Yale University Press recently published Roger's biography of Poulenc, who was the preeminent member of the group of musicians known as Les Cis, and probably remains France's best-loved and most-performed 20th-century composer. The best part of 40 years ago now, it was Roger Nichols' broadcasts on Radio 3 that really opened my ears to French music. Until then, I'd been in the thrall of the German tradition. But he played a major part in introducing me to the scintillating textures of Ravel, the wit of Chabrier, and the bittersweet melodies of Poulenc. So it was no small thrill to hear the voice I had known long ago coming from my radio, erudite but wry and subtle at the other end of the telephone. As for Poulenc, I listened to some of his works a lot when I was young, enough for them to enter my bloodstream, to be part of the melodies and musical turns of phrase that still come into my head unbidden. The chords awash with pedal from the slow movement of the piano concerto, the whoops from the finale of the sonata for two clarinets, the cheekily misplaced accents of the Gloria. But unlike Ravel, who became a lifelong favourite. At some point, I left Poulenc behind. Too slick, too glib, I reckoned. The bittersweet, too close to the sentimental. I was wrong, of course, but it took Roger's new life of Poulenc to show me that, to send me back to listen again to works I thought I already knew, and on to works I'd never heard before. The songs I hardly knew and they're rich, deep and astonishing, and he set some of my favourite French poets, Guillaume Apollinaire and Paul Iloard. The religious and choral music I hardly knew, and it too can reach depths I hadn't associated with a composer. If you feel you have Poulenc's measure, seek out his setting of four short poems by Iloard, Un soir de neige, A Snowy Evening, and see if it changes your mind. La nuit, le froid, la solitude – cold, dark and lonely – is not an atmosphere we normally associate with Poulenc. Of course, he is sometimes sentimental, deliberately, unashamedly, and he once declared, a vulgar tune is good if it works. But there's nearly always an irony to cut through sentiment. What he abhorred, as Roger's book shows, was omphase, a sort of self-important grandiloquence, a sort of Wagnerism. One of the quotations from Roger's broadcasts of my youth that has lodged in my memory all these years was Poulenc recommending playing one of his pieces as though you were improvising, a cigar in your mouth and a glass of cognac on the piano, the opposite of phase. But perhaps what Roger's biography taught me is that in certain lights, limpid waters may appear shallow, but in fact contained depths. After all, Poulenc was not an uncomplicated man. He had bouts of depression and self-questioning, and a love life that he kept very private, sealed off from his musical friends. When I spoke to Roger a few weeks ago, I started with the music. Were other works he hadn't known before embarking on his biography?
1: Oh oh yes. Yeah, I I I mean I may have known a bit of I've gotten recording of them, but I probably had listened to it more than once. For example, Les Animaux Model, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful work. I thought, gosh, how have I managed to ignore this all this time? It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Sometimes in filling in those
0: gaps it casts different light on the on the more familiar works too. Is that is that something that you, you found as you
1: as you listened and you well, yes. Uh, I mean, I hope it comes across in the biography that he was a very conflicted person, uh, a very complex person. This surface bonhomie covered a, a whole mass of uh, of difficulties uh, in in his personal life and and in his attitude to life in general. I think you know he, he does vary enormously I mean you get this obviously this I said this Bonhomus side of him um, very uh, very extrovert um, but underneath and I think often in even in the happiest music there is a little tinge of melancholy there I guess he's he's suffered from being
0: pigeonholed I think you've sort of already uh, alluded to that of being seen as perhaps rather sentimental or rather Bittersweet, or rather facile, or rather démodé. So he he has suffered more than most from that sort of snap judgment, hasn't he?
1: Well, you could say he was born at a difficult time for the sort of music <laughs> that he was writing. <laughs> I mean, he did have yeah. doubts, as, as, as we know, just briefly in the early nineteen twenties. He tried writing difficult music. There are a couple of piano suites, the um, the Promenade, uh, the uh, and the Impomptu as well which aren't a success, really, and I don't think anybody plays them anymore. You only find them in complete versions of of all his piano music, Um, but nobody really, I don't think, plays them for pleasure. They made quite a splash at the time. I think it was in the air. Things after the First World War had to change, of course. I mean, Les were all about that. Um, but it also changed not only in the, in the direction of uh, being popular or populist, if you like, um, but also in being rather difficult in a Prokofiev kind of way, you know, with wrong notes. And this really didn't suit him. And he, after just these couple of essays, he he gave up on that. And uh, by 1924, 1923, he was writing Les Biches. I wanted to ask you, Roger, to take us back to
0: the milieu into which. Poulenc was born, and just say a little, a bit, before we talk more about the sort of musical milieu, just the sort of social milieu into
1: which he was born in 1899. Well, he was born into the haute bourgeoisie, into the, the high bourgeois. Although he complained occasionally of being broke, money never really was a problem with him. The family, the, the, his father's family, ran the, uh, the, the, the Poulenc Frère chemical company, Rhone Poulenc it is now, and occasionally you see lorries saying, oh, And, yes. and uh, it's still a flourishing concern. And, and he had shares in them, of course, which helped him all his life. They they had a very easy life. I mean, they had servants, you know, as one did in those days. So from that point of view, he was spoiled. And, of course, the left-wing commentators have always commented sourly on this. You I mean, It wasn't his fault he was rich any more than it was Mendelssohn's fault that he was rich. And nonetheless, as I say, he became utterly professional in his attitudes, and that I think came from both sides of his family. It came from his father's side. His father, in fact, rather than a chemist, was much more interested in photography, and had a, a, a early on in late nineteenth century ha, had an atelier. And Poullain was always very keen on photography. He always took a camera with him wherever he went in the world. The results of this are in the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, make wonderful a wonderful sight too telling us where he's been and who he's seen. So there was there was that professional side, but also on his mother's side, because they were what we called Ebeniste, that's to say they were specialists in, in woodwork and marquetry and high-class furniture. Uh, and I think this attention to detail is something that you find with Poulenc, as you say, rather surprisingly perhaps, given the general view of him as some sort of amateur who just every now and again dipped into the world of music. No, certainly not you see in the piano music, which is, I think probably the most, uh, the most interesting in this point of view, you see enormous attention to detail in the fingering that he puts in, and in particularly in the um, accompaniments to his songs. There was some strange fingering, you know, you must put the thumb here because it gives the right sound, that kind of thing. Absolutely meticulous attention to detail. And in, in the solo piano music, likewise, which he regarded at the end of his life as having been one of his failures, I'm afraid, because he he never managed to write the, the big piano work, which he I think he always really wanted to do. Commenting
0: on it later in his life, he talked about what he called the vulgar, naughty boy side of music that he'd been... Exposed to in his childhood, and he, would, he was suggesting that it it had sort of entered his bloodstream early and was really very much part of him it wasn 't just something that he adopted like a like a disguise or put no, on like no, no. a hat
1: Yes, no, that was his mother's family his his mother 's parents had a large house in Nogent sur marne where he spent a lot of time in, in his in his spare time in the holidays and so on and that was a wonderful introduction to the lower Class society, if I may call it that, which he reckoned of sort of accordions and chips, you know, yes. um, and, and popular songs. And popular song played an enormous part in, in his life. He actually managed to write, without meaning to perhaps, a lot of popular tunes. I mean, I think this is the thing I, one, one finds with everybody when you talk to them about, oh, they, I love his tunes, they say. And sure enough, he is one of the great tunesmiths of the 20th century, you know, on a, a par with Gershwin or whoever. And I think it's generally agreed in the musical world that it's not something you can learn. You can't be taught how to write tunes. And I think of all of Les Cis, he was the one who was the best at writing tunes, and this is one of the reasons why I think undoubtedly he is of the six. He is the one who is played the most by some by some way.
0: I was going to ask you about his musical education. He didn't go to the conservatoire, and it's hard to imagine a Poulenc sort of submitting to that sort of formal
1: musical education, it really wouldn't have suited his temperament, would it? No, I think probably it didn't. I think that was a good move without being being deliberate in any sense. No, uh, I, th- I think that academic education, he would have seen his way through it, I think, but it might have s- slowed down his progress in the early years. But, of course, that, that's all guesswork. Um, but What he did have was a marvellous teacher in Charles Kirkland, who writes music totally unlike Poulenc. I mean, it's much more cerebral, much harder going in in some places, but also extremely interesting. And he was a marvellous teacher because he understood at once in the way that best teachers do what it was that made Poulenc tick. He said, you're not a contrapuntal writer. I'm not going to get you to write fugues. You're not built that way. You're a, a tune maker and you see things vertically rather than horizontally. Uh, and so he had him writing Bach chorales, uh, and that, Poulenc said, played an enormous part in his life, particularly in his choral music, in the sacred choral music that he wrote. You hear every now and again, or often now and again, you sort of hear a little bit of a Bach chorale in the way that the voices move. And Kirkland was a, a, a great standby, and he was always grateful for the teaching that he had. He was born at the turn of the...
0: The, the 19th into the 20th century, and he was living in Paris. And it's impossible, really, to imagine a better city to be coming of age in if music, you know, and in, indeed any of the, the arts at that time, the years um before and after the First World War, it was
1: it was true. I mean, it's a, almost a cliché
0: to say it was a sort of ferment of, of activity, wasn't it?
1: Yes, yes, it was. I mean, he was a great fan of Debussy from early years. And that's really what woke him up, I think, listening to the, those dance for harp and orchestra. And he loved the chords of the Ninth, which he said sounded slightly out of tune, <laughs> which uh, which, he, which he found very interesting. Well, yes, I mean, after the war, certainly, with Satie's Parade in 1917, which I- initiated that extraordinary era, there's a recording in in the BBC archive that Mio made in the 1950s when someone asked him, what, what do you remember about the 1920s? And he said, well, I think what I remember chiefly is that one was free to do anything, but no one forbade you from doing anything. It was a, a marvellously free and, an atmosphere in which you could explore anything. You could, you could be as dissonant as you liked, as noisy as you liked, and use as much popular music as you liked, and nobody was looking down their noses at you. And I think Poulenc took an enormous advantage of that. So what
0: brought Les Cises together? They didn't have a manifesto in the way that some, you know, groups of musicians, artists have had.
1: Well, yes, this, this is a rather difficult area. No one's quite sure about the chronology here. But certainly Jean Cocteau played a large part in this. And it was largely his doing, I think, they got together. But they were all a bit nervous of Cocteau because, he, of course, he wasn't a trained musician. And he tended to to in, interfere in things that really weren't, weren't his weren't his métier. Mio's widow, was, whom I was happy to know rather well, uh, she said to me, you know, Cocteau didn't recognise he he was doing anything unless he was doing everything. <laughs> so that you had to be a bit wary of that, that he would kind to take things over. But on the other hand, he was a master publicist, so they, they were grateful for that, I think, and that he got them known around the place. And of course, although they were a group, they they didn't all play or write the same kind of music by no means. I mean, you know, you've got Mio and Hornegal on one side who are much more serious, much more solid, almost Germanic, you might say, in some parts, than people like Auric and Poulenc. We've mentioned Ravel and Debussy as figures who were
0: well established and part of the, the, the musical currency of the time. But perhaps... As important or more important, when Poulenc was sort of coming of age musically, was the presence in Paris of Igor Stravinsky and Diaghilev.
1: Yes, Stravinsky played an enormous part in his life, not actually by being present, but as the composer of these masterpieces coming one after the other, and all of very different kinds. Obviously, uh, we we know, and I think I've mentioned in the biography, the occasion when Poulenc As a fourteen-year-old, went to hear the concert performance of *Rite of Spring*, and his dad, when he came home, and dad said, "Well, that's not really the sort of thing you should be listening to," and Mum kept very quiet, from which we gather that she approved, and Dan wasn't so sure. You know, this was dangerous stuff for a young lad. But then, after the war, of course, Stravinsky turned rather towards the neoclassical side, and we produced works like uh, Histoire du Soldat*, *Les Noces*. And all those uh, Poulenc took very much to heart, and particularly later on in the 20s, when you had wonderful pieces which were less exciting, if you like, and not so rough, and he became more more classical. There Poulenc certainly found something that he could really absorb and turned into something to his own advantage.
0: You open really the, the book, Roger, with on page one, invoking the, this idea of French temperament, which of course you, you, know, you question, but you raise it as something that's worth considering, whether there is such a thing and, and if there is what it is and, and how Poulenc might relate to it. Why did you think that was of such importance to, to bring it up
1: right at the start? Well, it's something that runs through French writing about music from way back, Debussy, for example, sees French culture as something female and something that is in danger of being overborne by some bullying male. And it has to be protected and it has to, be, has to be cherished and you have to look after it and treat it kindly. And he certainly felt that apropos Wagner. And I think here, certainly, Poulenc agreed with Debussy that you could have too much Wagner... And he did say on one, which again I quote on one, one time, I sincerely hope I never have to hear Die Meistersinger ever again. <laughs> and he loathed that, what he called enfas, which is not, not just emphasis, but actually means this rather bullying, hectoring side, this determination to ram things home, you know. That was something which he avoided like the plague. Even in the, that extraordinary opera, The Dialogue des Carmelites, which is harrowing to the last degree. That last scene really knocks you for six. Even there, there are never a note too many. He knows how to keep things short, how to keep things simple, how to keep things clear, and at the same time be profound. And that is an extraordinary gift, I think. But I think that is in tune with the French temperament, that less is more. I mean, if you go back to the harpsichord pieces of of Couperin, for example, you know, a lot of them are extraordinarily simple, and they do simple things, but they really knock you sideways uh, if they're they're well played. And this was what he was after. So I, I think, yes, the French temperament was very important for him, and he felt himself to be very French and said, look, I'm I'm not like Honegger. If you see Honegger walking down the street, he's probably got a score under his arm by Florent Schmidt or Strauss or Wagner, you know, whereas I probably will have something by Chabrier.
0: Yes, Chabrier, whom he he would later, well, towards the end of his life, he'd write a, a biography of, him, and clearly there was some sympathetic resonance between the, the two men's temperaments.
1: Oh, yes. Well, that was the only book he ever wrote, yes, <laughs> right at the end. Well, yes, absolutely so. I mean, the, the Chabrier is a much underestimated figure. He was loved by everybody. I mean, Ravel thought he was wonderful. Debussy thought he was extraordinary. Stravinsky liked his music, you know, and you find Diaghilev the, the too, and Poulenc. So it's, it's, it's quite an array of fans that he had. So, as a young man in the 1920s,
0: what kind of music was Poulenc writing in order to gain attention, in order to make a name for himself which he was clearly keen to do what were the genres
1: what were the types of music which would be likely to do that well the great um, beginning for him of course was to be commissioned by Diaghilev to write a ballet for the Ballet Russe which was to be Les Biches which they performed in 1924 that was the the real start of, of him being well known I think uh, before then, he would written uh, uh, some some lovely songs and some, some short piano pieces, but nothing that really grabbed the attention of the multitude. But this was, was a huge success. And the extraordinary thing is, if I can just make, go sideways for a little moment, that Diaghilev um, never asked him to write anything else. He invited Auric twice more to write ballets, but not Poulenc. I've suggested that maybe it was because Poulenc didn't really like the conducting in the first performance in Monte Carlo, and he thought the conductor didn't really get the message, and other people agreed. And maybe this got back to Diaghilev, who who wasn't a man that you you took lightly, and he didn't take criticism very well either. So maybe that was the reason. Maybe he got into a huff about that. We don't know. But it's a a strange thing, because it was a huge success and as I say, really made his name. And after that, well, there are a number a number of works. I mean, the songs go on throughout the whole of his life, and they are what uh, perhaps most people are, are aware of, I think, perhaps even non-musicians, too, have their favourite Poulenc song out of the whatever it is, 100, 180, so I can't remember the number, but it's something quite, quite large that he wrote. And uh, the wonderful thing is there are very few duds there, an extraordinarily high quality that he kept up. So you find those in the 1920s as well. And, of course, they go into the salons, and through the salons they get known, and through the salons you get known. They were a very powerful institution, uh, run generally, almost entirely, by by the ladies of of Paris, uh, with well-to-do husbands. Uh, The husband would retire to his study and have a, a smoke, while the music went on elsewhere, by and large but they were very important because not only did you get your music played, but they were places where people met. You know, you might meet the Minister of the Interior, you'll the Director of the Opera, you know, and that's the way you got yourself um, commissions to write this or that.
0: And clearly, as you say, the, the songs are a thread which run through his entire career, and his relationship with poets was very important. He knew Apollinaire towards the... the the end of Apollinaire's life, and he had a a long-standing relationship with Iluar later, and, and with his work, and he really had to be inspired by the the poet and and the work in order to to hmm. put pen to manuscript paper, didn't he? he wouldn't oh he yes, wouldn't... yes.
1: He, he said it's an, it's not a work of celebration; it's a work of love. I have to fall in love with the poem in order to be able to do anything with it. And by and large, he kept he kept to that. Yes, he he didn't set. Poets of the Romantic era. You get some occasionally from poems like Ronsard going further back, but particularly, as you say, they were contemporary poets that he favoured. And the two mentioned, Apollinaire and Éloire, were his two favourite poets. Uh, Éloire, who taught him how to write about love. Uh, Although there are also some love poems of of Apollinaire, which are absolutely marvellous. But the the first song cycle gives you a clue, if you wanted a clue, as to the sort of composer that you have, which is the Bollinaire's Le Bestiaire, which for a 19-year-old is really a quite astonishing piece of work. Here again, it's very simple. There's not a note too many. Every note tells. But there's an absolute character. that You you hear at once, gosh, this is somebody different. And uh, you try and analyse how he's done it, and you really don't get anywhere. You, you see, oh, there's a bit of a scale there, there's an arpeggio there, you know, but just the way the whole thing is put together. And I, I think if one had to choose out of the six songs of Le Bestia, I think the last one, the carp, the, the carp in his pond, not doing anything. Yes. Absolutely silent and quiet and still, you know, and the, the music has this extraordinary stillness. Poisson de la mélancolie, it ends up the yes. fish of melancholy. You have to think, Gosh, yes, this is a genius, you know. This is somebody who can really do it at the age of nineteen, without any training, because he hadn't had he hadn't had Kirkland's training at that stage.
0: Yes, yeah, I mean, you quote one writer saying that he has a predilection for poems that could be contained. On a postage stamp, and I thought that was a nice a nice characterization of just, you know, apparently simple, concentrated, lapidary kind of utterances. Then, and then he, as you say, he doesn't overreg the pudding. He doesn't sort of overdo the
1: effects. You know, he he has great economy of means. Yes, but it's terribly accurate. I mean, I I always think of that wonderful song Hôtel, a Polyneur poem. ...about the chap in the hotel... ...and he doesn't want to work... ...and he doesn't want to do anything... ...and eventually he comes clear of what he does want... ...and he says... ...I want to have a smoke... ...that's the last line of the poem... (laughs) ...and after that... Poulenc just plays... four major chords... ...pretty much... ...just four... ...and they are absolutely right... ...and I've asked readers... ...to see if they can produce four chords... (laughs) Themselves, which have the same completely right effect. I've tried uh, and yeah. absolutely failed completely. I've been doing it for twenty or thirty years. I've never ever got there. It's not within a mile of what Poulenc does. Quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Maybe that relates to something which is
0: also found in some of his orchestral music or his instrumental music, which is which you you highlight, which is this sort of ambiguous. Sign off the way that he will quite often end a piece of music with something which seems to be ironic or a, a little shift in in nuance or the attitude or tone, which somehow kind of yeah somehow sort of ironizes or casts a question mark or gives a little yeah. sort of half smile. Yeah. What, yeah. What, what do you think? Is that is that Poulenc's sort of
1: inability to take himself seriously? Or how do you, you characterise that? Um, yeah, I find it very difficult. That's a very good question, to which I don't really have a clear answer. I think they are sort of question marks, yes. If it's been a serious song, you know, he will end as if it's said, um, shall I be taking this as seriously as this? What do you think? You know, it sort of puts the onus back on the listener to try and evaluate what we've just heard, which is something that nobody else does, to my knowledge, so regularly, and with such musical effect, too. I mean, they're all different, these little sign-offs, but they all have, as you say, this ironical twist to them. Or, oh, did I get a bit too serious there? What do you think? You know, but there's an implicit questioning of it all. I think he, it's just, again, it's this fear of en phase, this fear of being too didactic and perhaps Teutonic that <laughs> keeps him in this mood, that, that, that he wants to be quite sure that he he's not, as you say, not over-egging the pudding, he's not being boring. I think I think being boring perhaps would be one of his pet hates. Now, you mentioned earlier, Roger, that
0: Poulenc was a complicated man and far from being as straightforward as sometimes his melodic invention might at first make you think, there were periods of depression in his life. And by his late 30s and the late 1930s, I got the sense that he sort of takes a turn towards maybe taking himself more seriously perhaps is that a way to is that a way to characterize it and the way that he did that was to begin writing religious music perhaps in a in a different vein from what had gone before
1: yes well he, uh, uh, as you know he had this extraordinary uh, incident in 1936 when the, this composer he wasn't really a friend, but he, he knew him. He'd, he'd worked with him. And, in fact, they didn't get on terribly well. And people may said this chap was a friend. He wasn't really. But he was killed in Hungary, walking along, and a car knocked him over and decapitated him in a rather horrible mm. way. Mm. Um, anyway, and the news arrived while he and Belmack, his, his partner in the, the song-writing business, were working with their guru on the songs that they were preparing for the following season. Uh, and this news came through about this this poor man who had been decapitated and although poulenc you know was naturally was sorry that the chap had died this isn't the main thing that comes through in the letters the main thing that comes through in the letters is something i'm afraid rather rather less easy to digest for us it is what would have happened to me and my music and my 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 reputation yes. if i had died at this age in in my mid 30s you know so that made him <laughs> brought him up short to thinking gosh you know if all i've written is x and y you know people aren't going to think very much of all this i've got to get my get myself into some sort of serious serious situation here and and undoubtedly religion played a part here i actually talked to the wonderful lady who was with them, looking after their their repertoire and and helping them with their interpretation, back in the 1980s when she was quite an old lady, and as I say in the book, and there was a very <laughs> sharp retort from her because I I said something about Poulenc returning to Roman Catholicism, and mm. she says. In foi. you don't return to the faith. The faith is always there with you once you've once you've learnt it and once you've been baptised and had your first communion. You know, you are a Roman Catholic whether you like it or not, no matter what you do. So that was that was a very sharp, abrupt answer. And I, I, I see her point too. But anyway, as far as he was concerned. This is where his religious music begins, quite certainly with the Litaniae noire because they were just within range of Rocamadour, where the Black Virgin is. Poulenc's father had often talked about this Black Virgin. He was the Roman Catholic of the family. His mother wasn't. She was. She was atheist, and so he went to the, to the Black Lady, of, the Black Virgin of Rocamadour, and coming down. There's that marvelous picture in, in in the book, which I was so glad to be able to print, of the three of them coming down the steps. Uh, the two of them, I mean, he and and her, uh, photographed by Belmack coming down the steps, from of Rockhamondour, and you can see on Poulenc's face he's he's transfigured, isn't he? There's a, a beatific smile on his face. Yeah. As, uh, things have come right. He's found some sort of home at last, or I mean, he, a home that had been lost to him, if you like, in, in the rather um, zazzy time of Paris in the nineteen twenties. You know, when religion really wasn't at the, the top of anyone's list. It seems.
0: When you were writing about the litanies, Roger, which he wrote after that experience at Roca you refer to their humility, ferocity, and austerity, and those are not three qualities that we normally associate with Poulenc.
1: No, but um, those passages occur precisely at the moment where they're singing, E hey, pitié de nous », «Have pity on us ». They are very carefully reserved for those portions. Which perhaps something I should have made clearer, um, but it does it does indicate that he had this within him when he saw it necessary to slim down and, as you say, make more acute of the of the sounds that he that he was composing. He
0: was increasingly concerned with his his reputation and his status. That being so, why did he wait so long to write an opera? He was in his fifties in the nineteen fifties before he embarked on it and that was to be the work i suppose that he felt
1: you know well uh, i mean th- there was the lemaire de Tiresias yes before that i have to say in the, the mid 40s in 1947 which is comic opera uh, very very much a comic opera on, on based again on apollinaire um, but if you're, you're thinking o- about a serious opera when you, when you say opera here <laughs> you're talk, talking about uh, dialogue de carmelite yes. yes yes sorry maybe yes. I'm falling no, into no, a, right, a, a trap
0: a and... trap a Germanic trap <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes it's, uh, that's a good question I mean I, th- I think he he chose the comic opera first in order to, to to see how he got on with opera in general I suspect I mean I, do, I don't know we don't know anything he didn't give any reasons for this among the literature that I've read but he he'd, he'd been thinking about it Mamel de Thérésias, from before the war. So he'd had it in his mind for five or six years and it eventually, eventually found its way into the opera comique. I'm not sure why that was. I mean, it was difficult to get yourself played. This is one thing. I mean, this is a complaint that goes way back into the 19th century with French composers, that you had a sort of queue of people waiting for their operas to be performed. And a lot of jostling went on and a lot of politicking and uh, currying favours with the important people. You know, it was, in a sense, quite an unsavoury business. You really had to push yourself. Uh, I say this goes back into the end of the, the last half of the 19th century and people like Massenet and, and so on uh, having to really push quite hard to get things performed. So that whether he was unwilling to enter into that field, I, I don't know. But also, of course, he needed to have a subject. And uh, although he'd been looking, I think, throughout the war for some sort of big subject and just afterwards, he hadn't found anything that really that really chimed with what he wanted to do. I mean, for example, I mean, uh, Diolo de Calmelite itself wasn't the first idea that was around. He was going to write a ballet on, of all things, St. Margaret of Cortona how you write a ballet about a saint, I'm not quite sure, but that was the first idea, and then gradually it was refined, and he found he couldn't couldn't really begin on that one at all, and uh, you find him at last writing, I think, to, to Bangladesh, saying it's all sorted, it's not going to be a ballet, it's going to be an opera, and it's going to be about the Carmelites. And you have this extraordinary business of him, according to him. This, this is maybe just myth-making. It, it has to be said, he was a bit of a myth-maker. You know, he yes. he liked to to arrange his past into some sort of suitable order. Um, this is just being a composer, if you like, composing his life, <laughs> if you wish. So you have, can't always take him at face value. But there is the, the story of him suddenly finding the book uh, you know, of... Uh, of the Carmelites, the Dialogues of the Carmelites, which he knew, which, which he'd actually seen on, on stage before the war, uh, suddenly finding this in a bookshop in Milan. had been waiting for him, you know, and he rushes off to the cafe and in, in an hour and a half he's already got his ideas for the first scene. You know, and this is all very good anecdotal stuff. But but I think that, that as you were saying earlier, he has to love these things. It's not enough just to be vaguely attracted to them or to think, oh, that might sell well. That was never in his mind. It was always a question of, I've fallen in love with this and I must do it, which I I find rather a healthy attitude, I have to say.
0: You quote Poulenc writing on Gabriel Faure, when Poulenc, I think, was... Still quite a young man. And he described Faure as a master, but a minor master. And I wondered, is that a fair verdict on Poulenc himself? Is that, you know, you've, you've written biographies of, of several major French composers. Should we regard Poulenc ultimately as a, a very gifted but minor master?
1: I'm reluctant to call him a minor master. I mean, if, I mean Dialogue de Carmelites is one of the few operas that have survived from the last 70 years in the repertoire. I mean, what else have you got? You've got uh, Turn of the Screw, I suppose, and Einstein on the Beach, and China, uh, Nixon in China. Dialogue de Carmelites, are there any others I've missed? Maybe one or two. But, it, but it, uh, you know, the big opera houses play it regularly. And as you know, it, I mean, it is a, a harrowing experience. I mean, it's wonderful music, uh, and you come away feeling purged in an Aristotelian way, but a minor opera, it is not. And I think the same goes for a lot. I think we have to be careful what we mean by a great composer or a really important, I really hate that word, an important composer. There is a composer who gives immense pleasure to tens of thousands of people across the world uh, with his songs alone, you know. Nobody else there's nobody else of his era whose songs have anything like the, the popularity of his. And he is the end of a system as well. I mean, there are no melodies after him worth the other name. There's nobody in, in the way of Forêt or of Debussy or of Poulenc after Poulenc. That was the end of it. And really, it was because of the end of tonality as the given medium that actually had an effect... But you would have thought by now, with postmodernism, that somebody would have, in, in France would have, um, would have come up to a scratch on that front. Well, maybe they are doing so as I speak, but uh, nothing has come through as yet, I fear. So, I mean, I, I, from that point of view, I, I think he has to be regarded as a major figure. There are works which you can't still can't quite place. I mean, the organ concerto is a, is a famous one, which no one is very happy about placing, in that rather didactic, schoolmasterish sort of way. You know, it does all sorts of things. It starts off with a quotation from the G minor fantasy of of Bach, from the Fantasy and Fugue, because it was dedicated to the Princess Polignac, uh, and that was one of her favourite pieces. So you start off by... Uh, and it doesn't go much like Bach after that, but uh, that was just enough. Uh, and then you've got sort of fairground music, and fair, it sounds like a fairground organ at various times. And you're back with the Nojean, with the, with the chips and the uh, uh, and the general razzmatazz. So they're very hard to place. Some of these, you know, and, and it's all one with these, these sign offs. How seriously are we to take this stuff? Uh, and you, but you just can't write it off. I mean, one of the reasons is you keep remembering it. In you find that. I mean, you find also humming a tune, and it turns out to be Poulenc. Absolutely. Well, I'd,
0: I'd in my in my teenage years, I played both the sonata for two clarinets and the clarinet sonata. And when something like that gets into your bloodstream, it just stays there. You know, the, the little little scraps of of Poulenc melody do do come into my mind unbidden at all sorts
1: of times. Hmm. And, I mean, if, you, if we have any doubts about him, about his ab- ability to be great, I'm not saying he's great all the time, but then Beethoven wasn't great all the time either, and nor was Bach. Uh, but, uh, I mean, if you want any doubt about his greatness, I mean, there's that incredible song, C'est, about the bridges in the first world, in the, in the Second World War. I have crossed the the, the bridges of C. J'ai traversé les ponts de C. C'est là, it's there that it all began. Good commencé. I mean, it is an astonishing song, and it was recognised as such from early days. I, I quoted the, how how you know, Joachim, the, the marvellous Melisande in Pelias and Melisande recording from the 19, early nineteen forties, how she heard it and, and was absolutely knocked sideways, and it had to be had, had to be repeated instantly. And, and it is. Uh, I mean, I, I have to admit here. At one point, I was giving a a seminar on, on Poolinque songs, well it was on songs generally, actually on no, French songs generally at one of one of the universities, I didn't say which. And the girls sang sang say, and I started to talk about it, and I had to stop mm. because I, I felt the tears absolutely welling up inside. And they're doing so now, as I talk about it, I can feel I really want to stop and blow my nose, you know. It's so astonishing. Again, it, it is so simple. It seems so natural and so ordinary in a way. And yet you come away thinking, God, what a terrible time, what a terrible life that was in the nineteen early 1940s under, under that regime, you know. It just gets there. Let me
0: ask you, Roger, in conclusion... You've spent years in the company of Francis Poulenc. What, for you as a biographer, are the the joys and what are the frustrations of spending so much time in in close proximity to the man and the music?
1: Well, to take them in the other order, I mean, the the trouble, the problems there are lack of information on his love life. At least one reviewer of, of the book has taken issue with this, not understanding how little material there is on this front. He had something like five male lovers, as well as an early an early um, female, uh, an early woman, who died very dreadfully, sadly, in 1930. And he, he remembered her all his life, Raymond Linocier. Uh, he never forgot her. She was important to his life. And to what extent the men after that were a second best is something that you have to leave to speculation. But he never found one person to be with, they came and they went. In his favour, it has to be said that when when they ceased to be lovers, they often remained friends, which is not what always happens. So I think that speaks well of everybody involved, the way it happened. But there are no letters from any of these lovers to him. All that we have in the other direction are a few letters, two of which are published. Some are still unpublished, and you have to take the best that you can find in the published material. One of his first lovers. The other four, we have nothing at all from him or from them. So it is very hard to know what to say about these people. His musical friends normally didn't meet them. It was a different part of his life. And this was something that, uh, that Mio's widow, Madeline Mio, said to me. We were talking about him one day, and she said, oh, of course, that was another part of his life. We didn't know anything about that. And that's the way he wanted it. Quite clearly, he wanted this to be separate and private, and I don't see anything wrong with that. So, but, I mean, for him, they were important, and I hope where they did impinge upon the music, I, I hope I have said enough on, on that front. I, I certainly intended to, because one of them certainly was very much implicated in the in the um, in the in the writing of uh, dialogue de Carmelite and, and and his death coincided according to Poula with him finishing on the on pop the composition of that work that's the difficult side on the other side of course are there are any number of things that are, are wonderful i mean his letters for a start i mean they are an absolute treasure trove. you couldn't ask for a better letter writer unless it, unless oh. it was Chabrier. Um, But uh, (laughs) they are equally wonderful, in my view. (laughs) Terribly funny. I mean, he was a very funny man. Uh, And as soon as he came through the door, everybody cheered up. You know, one of those wonderful people who have that gift uh, of cheering people up. That's when he wasn't depressed, of course. But, I mean, clowns often are depressed, as we know. But so the, the, the letters are absolutely wonderful. And, of course, the music itself. I mean, I'm about to say I have by today, by the same post received a, a lovely letter from a composer friend saying that the, the book has sent him back to the music. And that really is all I'm aiming to do here. I mean, information is fine. I mean, if that, if that's interesting, I know, I'm, I'm glad that that's the case. But I think increasingly we need to be aware of the gift and, and, and the enormous range of this man's gifts, which is something, as I think you touched on at the very beginning of this, this talk, that uh, perhaps people have not understood well enough.
0: I was talking to Roger Nichols, whose new biography of Francis Poulenc is available in hardback from Yale University Press. One reviewer wrote, I don't think anyone writes better about classical music than Nichols. his wry humour and gift for surprising connections, never losing touch with scholarly erudition. If you've enjoyed this interview... You'll find more than 60 others available at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.